So, uh, today's question is, if I remember it correctly, what, if anything, have I retained of my Methodist upbringing? Has any of it stuck with me, and if so, what? And also to consider that uh, in light of enabling Duncan to choose his own path. So, I guess first I would have to be frank and admit that the answer depends upon when in my lifetime you would ask. Uh, and it would range from outright rejection in the beginning to, to a, a deeper, deeper feeling of commonality I expect in the future. Um, but the early rejection I think was based upon a couple of factors. First of all, it was the simplistic response of a very young person, of a 14-year-old, um, with a 14-year-old's understanding, which is naturally relatively superficial. And I think it's, I think it's a basic principle that superficiality makes it easier to see differences than it is to see commonalities. People with a, a superficial understanding of different types of sports, for example, would only see how they're different. Whereas, when you have a much deeper understanding of something, you can see the commonalities. And, and back to the sports analogy, you could see how there's a commonality of, of strategy, a commonality of the necessity for team building and, and teamwork and things like that. Um, but the kind of depth of understanding that allows one to see commonality takes time. And in the, in the, the case of the spiritual search, I think that time is measured in, in years of, of life experience and spiritual search and practice. Um, so early on I rejected it outright um, as children do, you're pretty digital. Also I think that's a common experience for somebody who has rejected something that was a big part of their life for a while. I know that my my parents have said a few times that um, there's no not, what, how do they say it? There's no uh, avid and anti-smoker as an ex-smoker. This is coming from uh, both of them having smoked for many years before they quit. Uh, I think the same thing is, is often true with religion. You know, there's no <laughs> avid, uh, not as avid and, you know, anti-religion person as one who was formerly in that religion. Um, that's probably an overgeneralization. I think there are m many people who mature to a level that they can leave the orthodoxy of their faith but not the core of it. But anyway, that, that's getting a bit ahead of the topic, I think. So if you had asked me early on, I would have said there's, you know, I didn't retain anything. Um, now, you know, what, uh, 37 years after the fact, uh, 38, anyway, I wouldn't say that I retained much. I would say that I came back to to some understanding. Um, but first let me go back and, and say that certainly I retained none of the doctrinal orthodoxy. Things such as the Nicene Creed, the basic statement of, of the Christian faith. Um, any of the kind of abstract, what I would call abstract or obscure points that, that the kinds of doctrinal issues that cause splits into ever more 
uh, denominations over the centuries. Uh, you know, to go from the, basically the one church, the Catholic Church, to Catholic versus uh, and Greek, Greek Orthodox, and then into Protestants, and then the Protestants branching off into all kinds of different denominations, and and then all the other offshoots that you know the Anglican Church and and the Mormons, and I'm sure I'm not getting that in any kind of historical accuracy or, or whatever, but you get the, the point. Those were usually over some kind of basic doctrinal issue that uh, each group saw differently and, and therefore formed a split. So I certainly didn't retain any of those kinds of things. And the sense of historical accuracy that, you know, uh, Genesis was a factual account or that, you know, the earth has a 6,000 year history or that um, you know, any of those kinds of things, even up to the his historical accuracy or truth of the resurrection. Um, I certainly understand its importance to Christians, um, and I absolutely don't believe it. Um, so that kind of <laughs> covers the gamut of the things that certainly did not carry over. Um, but to my previous statement, I think I came back to realize more, and which which could not I could not have done without having that first exposure. So I guess maybe it is a sense of retaining. Um, and I think that's a prime example of I don't know what would you call it co-learning or basically seeing something from a different perspective can deepen your understanding. Sometimes you need to leave your topic. Um, to to you know to either rest or to look at things from a different perspective to get a better appreciation. That's why multidisciplinary career paths are often so valuable. If you can combine two different uh, ways of thinking, it can produce a very valuable uh, um, insight. Um, or basically, you know, just taking a rest from something. You know, how many times have people had their eureka moment in the bathtub as Arch what was it Archimedes and, and you know many other people I know I have lots of great ideas in the shower um, so that's one aspect that allowed me to come to a deeper appreciation of thing some things was that by definition when I left uh, the Methodist Church I had a you know different perspective um, and the word I use here is to gain a deeper appreciation. It's not agreement, it's not denial, it's an appreciation of another way of seeing. Not good for me, not a way that worked for me, but not necessarily wrong. Um, and this, you know, I've mentioned before some other examples where I went on a, a, a meditation retreat at a Catholic retreat center where I did contemplation meditations on passages from the New Testament. Um, I have a deeper appreciation for for the golden rule, for the role of compassion in Christian teachings and the, the example of Christ's life. I have an, a deeper appreciation of all those things than I did before. Um, by comparison contrast, you know, in a way, by looking at it through the different eyes, a different lens of a different perspective. So I can find some harmony between the two traditions. 
and again not to take that too far not to try and whitewash anything and say all religions the same um, that's obviously not true but it's all I think it is true to say it's all addressing the same thing it's all people trying to seek the same answers in different ways um, so now that I, I use broader and deeper definitions of things in my spiritual search it's easier for me to see those commonalities um, one of my favorite all-time favorite quotes comes from the uh, was it the Sing Sing Men um, and it, it says uh, um, he who would seek the truth must first cease to cherish opinion and I read that as saying the truth with a capital T is so far beyond what we can describe what we can encompass in our limited minds um, that when we try to label it when we try to say the truth is this that invariably we're going to fall short of the mark so the words that I choose aren't necessarily going to be the same words that you choose and even though you know by definition if there's one ultimate truth and we're both trying to describe it we're trying to describe the same thing but we're using different words and that leads to arguments and divisions and wars and, and terrible tragedies in some cases um, but if we use broader and deeper definitions and if we focus on experience and not words it makes it easier to see the commonalities uh, an example that's been on my mind lately I don't know where this came from but the Trinitarian statement you know the, the vision of the Father Son and the Holy Spirit as I remember that caused a, a huge split in the church some four or five hundred years ago and that was one of the things that the think the King James version did was you know added wording to support the Trinitarian view and all that but I don't know that's <laughs> decades away in my education and I've forgotten most of what I learned um, but when I look at the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I can see a rough analogy, or, or a pretty good analogy, or two of those, and a rough analogy in one of those, from what Buddhists call the three treasures, the Dharma, Buddha, and Sangha. If, if we look at God as being the ultimate, the omnipotent, the infinite, uh, that's basically what we would consider the Dharma. If we look at the Son as the Buddha, that's the, the actualization, the incarnation of God, the realization within a human being in on earth of, of the Father, of the Dharma. And then when we look at the Holy Spirit, um, that one's a bit more of a stretch to try and compare that to the Sangha on one level. But if I look at the Spirit within someone, I see that the Holy Spirit within someone I see that as very analogous to what we would call the Buddha nature and then if you look at okay what do you do with that well that basically comes into play when you're dealing with other people well then dealing with other people is basically the definition of Sangha so I know this might be a bit academic or a bit too deep but my point is when I really look at it deeply I see similarities between the Christian Trinitarian view of Father Son and Holy Spirit and the Buddhist triple treasure 
of Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Um, I don't really think I'm... I mean, for the sake of the exercise, a little bit, I was kind of forcing round pegs into square holes, but also I think the pegs in the holes were roughly the same size, and I think there were, you know, <laughs> three in each case. I think there's a lot of commonality there. So, and I never would have had that level of understanding of the Trinitarian aspect of Christianity without having seen it th from a Buddhist perspective. Um, so, I guess what I'm trying to do is give an example of how I don't know that I've retained anything that a Christian would recognize, but I've certainly retained that, that awareness that helped me to have greater appreciation when I look at it again from my current perspective. So for the question of how will this apply for my, how I raise Duncan, well, I think the key aspect is asking the questions, the spiritual questions, the deep questions. Because if you're not answer, asking the questions, then the answers don't really matter. You know, it's just kind of a, an exercise. It's what you do. You recite this when you go to church or whatever. But, it, but if you have those deep, deep questions, that's what brings meaning to those things. So the first duty I see to him is to teach him to ask the questions, to know what the questions are, that it, there's value in asking those questions. And then the next step would be to expose him to different paths, which you might call answer paths, be it Christian, Buddhist, uh, you know, or, or whatever, um, paths that traditionally offer ways to address or ask those kinds of questions and look for answers. And then the next thing would be to teach him to recognize the truth. And that's the really tricky part. A lot of people say, well, this is the truth because I think it's the truth, and because of my authority, you need to accept it as the truth. And I think that's a false path. Um, I want to teach him to stand on his own merits and not accept something on authority, but to determine it for himself by deeply examining what he's being exposed to or taught to see what rings true. That's always been my driving force. That's why I don't understand people who can convert for the sake of marriage or something like that. If you can just change for convenience and basically, you know, to get along with your in-laws as convenience or whatever, then it can't be something very serious in your life. It can't be something that you absolutely believe at your core because you can't change what you what you believe or what you feel to be true. You can't change that. That's something that is revealed to you. So, but, but a lot of people are so driven by their cultural conditioning and their, and their, you know, the voices in their head of their parents and their grandparents and their teachers saying, this is, you know, what you should believe, that they haven't learned to listen to their own gut feeling. And that's one of the things I want to teach Duncan. And then finally, to give him that sense of safety and confidence that it's okay to find his path, that he will not be condemned if he does not follow my path or, or somebody else's path, that he is in a safe environment that he can explore and he can, he can 
try different paths and see what resonates as true for him. Um, and that's what I think the the path of a spiritual seeker is in any tradition is to look for that deep resonance, that deep feeling of, of rightness, of, of truth. Um, and I think at that level we're basically all looking for the same thing, all experiencing the same thing and, and all the the words and wrappings and cultural references and, and history and you know tribal patterns that we wrap around it are what get us into trouble. Um, so I'm starting to ramble, which is always the sign that I've come to the end of my understanding and it's time to stop. So I will do that at this point. Thank you for listening.